0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio.
1: And online at SBNationLive.com.
0: From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: It's our birthday. In fact, it's theirs, too, with the Beatles' White Album coming out 50 years ago. But it's also the fifth anniversary of the Talk of Fame Network. Five years ago this week, that's right, five years ago, Ron, and you would remember this, I drove from New York City to Boston, where you and I stood in a studio overlooking the Boston Harbor, second, yes, third floor, whatever it was, and we called Rick. And for the next 60 minutes, we were in our show then, but for the next 60 minutes, we became the Talk of Fame Network.
3: Exactly right. You know, that's still the finest studio real estate in broadcasting history. Our man Shea behind the glass (laughs) would love to be. No mini-mall parking lots, no airport planes, views of Boston (laughs) Harbor, skyline, Atlantic Ocean from the studio. It was
2: great. Hey, Goose, you remember the last-minute scramble we had for guests there? I mean, sometimes we weren't even sure who we'd have until, like, just before going on the air.
4: Yes, but we wanted some good ones. I remember Tony Dungy and Bill Cower who were among the yeah. first. Right.
2: Yeah. We had they, the commissioner, they
3: were. we had owners, we had we still yeah. do. We, we have it all.
2: We had Isaac Bruce in the parking lot of a church, I think it <laughs>
3: what's <well>, right. Too. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right.
2: And, anyway, guys, happy anniversary five years ago when some people Ron <laughs> didn't think we'd last five minutes.
3: Hey, listen, when we drew up this idea in a cocktail napkin in some gin joint in Canton, as I recall, uh, who knew it was going to be like five guys sitting on uh, running boards at Ralph Hayes' Hubmobile downtown in (laughs) Canton in 1920? (laughs) We formed a league that has
2: lasted. (laughs) Well, these days, we last a lot longer than five minutes. We're on each week, as I hope you know, for two hours and include a multitude of guests. Yes, multitude like today's red carpet that features Hall of Fame voter Peter King, who remembers the late Paul Zimmerman, and former Steelers great Rocky Blyer, who joins us in a tribute. Veterans Day, and I know both of you were on the Hall of Fame's board of selectors when Dr. Z was in there, and Goose, nobody liked him, was there?
4: Yeah, he played college ball at Columbia, knew the X's and O's, as well as most coaches in the game. He was a lineman, had a fondness for line play, and just very deeply analytical, one of a kind.
2: Yeah, he was one of a kind. Anyway, we're going to have more on Dr. Z and plenty of others in the
0: next two hours. But first, there's this. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, before we get into this segment, I want to
2: climb into the Wayback Machine and revisit a conversation we had, let me back the beginning of September, at least it was before the season, when I told Ron I had the first pick in my fantasy draft and I asked him whom I should take. Goose, you remember what he said?
4: Yes, sir. Between swigs of that Tom Coughlin Kool-Aid, he said Leonard
2: Fournette. (laughs) Yes, yes, he did. Well, I do what I usually do, and that's not listen to Ron. I took Todd Gurley. Mid-season update, Gurley has an NFL best 15 TDs. And Leonard Fournette, Ron, a Blutarski. That would be (laughs) 0.00. The the solidness
3: of that advice is is without question. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but how did I know the guy was made out of tissue paper? He's a tissue paper guy. He's not a fullback. He's not a running back. That's why the draft is difficult. You, there's tissue paper guys. You cannot count on tissue paper guys, as it turns out. Goose,
2: I was going to say, Goose, you're Dr. Data. You're the experienced voice. There must be a lesson there. What is it?
4: The lesson is don't play fantasy football. Too much to chance. I have played for more than two decades now, and enjoy my falls thoroughly these days.
3: Right. Okay. Or, be, my, or did- be like my wife and don't listen to me.
2: Yeah, there you go. Or me. Um, Anyway, uh, we'll move on from fantasy football. Not playing that today. But uh, this week, just wondering, did you guys vote? Ron, did you vote this week? Absolutely. Good man. Goose? Yes, sir. Last week, early voting. Ooh, good. Oh, whoa. Wow. All right. Exercise your
3: franchise, your body, and your bowels as frequently as possible. Let's say the first and last are somewhat similar.
2: (laughs) It's just not during the show. (laughs) Well, uh, good for you guys. I'm going to ask you to vote later in this program as we feature a mid-season awards. But for now, at least I want to get your ideas or your votes on which head coach is feeling the most heat. And and I don't want to hear, Ron, I don't want to hear Doug Marone just because that tissue paper, Leonard Fournette, can't see the field. But last week... I didn't know how to use them. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> but but last week, uh, or last weekend, we had the Heat turned up on five head coaches, outside, of course, of John Gooden, because he doesn't really count here. And that's Todd Bowles, Dirk Cutter, Vance Joseph, John Harbaugh, and yes, Goose, Jason Garrett, all of whom, I believe at least, aren't going to make it to next year. So who's the first to go? And Goose, I'll start with you. Who's the first to go and why?
4: Uh, I'd say Dirk Cutter. He's an offensive guru. The Bucks rank second in the NFL in Uh, An offense first and passing, yet can't win games. If his way isn't working, find another way.
1: Mm.
3: Yeah, I think it's uh, Vance Joseph in Denver because he just received the most feared thing any coach can acquire, this side of Colin Kaepernick. And that's a show of support from management. (laughs) (laughs) How many times have we heard that say, we're behind our guy, Mr. X, 100%, and two weeks later he walks the plank.
2: Well, I'm glad you mentioned that, Ron, because he's not the only one. Um, this week, Jerry Jones said, ah, you know, he's not going to make an in-season change. Of course, the last time he said that, he made one three days later. Um, <laughs> you, now, you, you look at the Cowboys' schedule, and Goose, you on top of this. He's down in Dallas here. I mean, Philadelphia this weekend, Atlanta the next. Then two Thursday games. First versus Washington. Okay, that one's up in the air. The second against New Orleans. I mean, Jason Garrett could easily be staring at 3-9 by Black Friday, right?
4: Yes, he could. But but Jerry moved on Wade Phillips back in twenty ten after an embarrassing forty five seven national televised loss to the Packers. Oh, yeah. I on Jerry thought the team quit on Wade that night, so he made the change. The Cowboys have been losing, but it doesn't appear to me the team has quit on Garrett yet, so I don't see Jerry making a mid season change as long as the team plays hard. Firing Wade was out of character for Jerry, keeping Garrett would be in character for Jerry.
2: So I want to ask you about something that Troy Aikman said this week, and basically he was on a radio station saying they should just blow the whole thing up and start from ground zero, get the whole thing reorganized, start from ground zero, and, and, and make all sorts of changes, head coaches, players, that sort of thing. Are you in line with that? Now, of course, I mean, you know, since Jerry Jones runs that place, there's not going to be a new GM, but are you in line with uh, Aikman on that?
4: Yeah, Troy Aikman's about 10 years late to the party, frankly. <laughs>
3: Wow, don't pick on our friend Troy Aiken. We like Troy
2: Aiken. Jeez, come on. Hey, Ron, would you scratch scratch him from the guest list in the future, would you please? Wow. Um, Anyway, okay, I'm going to move on from Jason Garrett. I saw something the other day, however, regarding coaches that caught my eye of the seven head coaches hired in 2016. And remember, that's just two and a half seasons ago. Four are already gone. And that's Hugh Jackson, Chip Kelly… Ben McAdoo and Mike Malarkey now of course Dirk Cutter was hired there in two so maybe it's four and a half or four in county <laughs> I don't know but Ron uh, I asked about a lesson earlier uh, there's got to be a lesson there too right I mean be careful what you wish for
3: yeah the lesson is that you are better off being an NFL running back than an NFL head coach because running backs, on average, the last three and a half years, despite the pounding they take, <laughs> head coaches now are going out of there a lot faster because they're getting pounded by uh, impatient owners, owners that have paid a lot of money for their teams, and they want to win football games, and they're just going to keep blowing it up until they find a way to do it.
4: Well, here's another for you. Since 2016, 17 NFL teams have changed coaches. That's huh. more than half the league. 17? Where wow. are the Dan Rooney's, Wellington Maristons, when you really need them? You know, all are in the Hall of Fame, all exercise patience, and you know, a little patience goes a long way in this league. There is.
2: Yeah, there. No, you know, that's right. I mean, you look at, you know, Pittsburgh one is one team that, it, it, to me, is sort of the model of that, Goose. I mean, they, they don't change coaches at all, but they also a team that's had prolonged success. Um, and within that division, you've got Cincinnati, Pittsburgh, and Baltimore. Those are three of the longest-tenured coaches right. anywhere.
3: Right. No, you're right. And then you look at the opposite. Look at the Browns and the Bills. They've started over more often than Elizabeth Taylor. It's just (laughs) just unbelievable.
2: (laughs) Hey, well, what do you think Mike Malarkey's thinking? Because he got the the Titans to the the playoffs last year. He's out of there, and, you know, they're staring at 500 right now. I mean, they played well this week, but, you know, you get the the playoffs, you get. Cut and be fired. What you, whatever. What do you
4: think Jim Caldwell's thinking? He had nine and seven. Yeah, right, right, and Matt right. Pierce was taking him the other direction.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, I think
3: a bunch of times, Clark. I mean, yeah. we've seen it happen to our friend uh, Billy Garrick, who you know built the Chiefs. Uh, you know, <laughs> the only guys uh, left uh, are the are the guys that Bill and those guys picked, uh, and not the regime that followed Scott Pioli yeah. at e.
2: all. Yeah, that's right. I think I should also mention guys. By the way, Doug Peterson. He was hired in two thousand sixteen. And all he did was win a Super Bowl. All rise, here comes the judge. Well, that's my cue to either introduce Aaron Judge or my next state-year case subject. And guys, I don't see Aaron Judge around here, so I'm going to make a Hall of Fame case for someone I wrote about this week on our website. That would be talkoffamenetwork.com. And that's former scout and personnel director Jack Benisi of the Green Bay Packers. Now, Jack is a former, as I said, scout uh, for the Packers who died in 1960, the age of 33 from a heart condition. And, and that's not a lot of time to make an impact, but... Jack was the exception. In in fact, he made such an impact, an enormous impact, on the Packers that the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel earlier this year said he might be the third most important figure in the history of the franchise, behind only Curly Lambeau and Vince Lombardi. And the reason is because Jack found the players that Vince Lombardi coached and coached to five championships in seven years. Now, granted, he wasn't the team GM, but he had such enormous influence that his suggestions were followed and his advice heeded, including his recommendation that the Packers hired Lombardi in 1959. And that worked out okay. Um, that should count for something, I think. Uh, but so does this. Look at the players he found. He recommended the draft of Jim Ringo in 1953, Forrest Gregg and Bart Starr in '56. Jim Taylor, Ray Nitschke and Jerry Kramer in '58, in one of the greatest drafts ever. And he signed free agent Willie Wood and engineered deals that landed Willie Davis and Henry Jordan. So what do they all have in common? They're all Hall of Famers. But it didn't stop there, guys. He found Max McGee, Boyd Dollar, Bob Skaronsky, Dan Curry, Ron Kramer, Bobby Jeter, Hank Greminger, and Tom Brown, all starters on championship teams. In fact, by the time the Packers won the 61 championship, a year after Vinici's death, 17 of the team's 22 starters were acquired in some way by him. Jack's brother, Sam, told the Journal Sentinel, the Lombardi dynasty, Jack was responsible for it. I wouldn't go that far, but I would say that Jack Venisi is the ideal candidate for the contributor category because his contributions to the Packers cannot be overstated, and that's the problem, guys. They haven't stated at all. He's never been a finalist, and it's time that changes.
4: Clark, there are three GMs in the Hall of Fame, Bethard, Wolf, and Polian. Give me two yeah. more names to round up the list of the top five personal guys of all time
2: whoa, um okay, I wow, this is I'm doing this off the top of my head I would say um Eddie Cattell, Eddie Cattell from the Rams who we talked about I think I mentioned him like two or three weeks ago uh Jack Venisi bill Nunn um Joe Thomas they're four guys, but I don't know how I get down to to two of those, but uh Haley I'd say Cattell Venisi uh y- yeah yeah uh, I, I don't know there are a lot of people there but uh, I'm going with Cotel and uh, maybe Bill Nunn anyway all I know is that if Jack Benice were alive today Goose, he would have told me to draft Todd Gurley but not <laughs> Leonard Fournette hey gotta go to commercial but when we return we'll have Peter King with us to talk about the late great Dr. Z this is the Talk of Fame Network
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, Goose, uh, I know you watched Monday's game because it was in Dallas and you were there, but, uh, Ronnie,
2: you weren't in Dallas, and you're not there. Did you watch it? Well, I'll tell you, in
3: in brief terms, I was at hockey rinks from 2.30 until (laughs) 9.45. I got home at 10 o'clock. I turned it on. And I almost instantly was lulled to sleep by the level of NFL play. So, I, so technically, I quote-unquote watched it, but I didn't see anything.
4: Let me say okay, well. No. Jerry Jones would have rather been in the rink with you.
2: <laughs>
5: yeah, that's <laughs> right. Watching that game.
3: The only thing <laughs> I saw, Goose Man, was they showed some shot of... Of Jones and I, I woke up yeah. not knowing what had happened, and he was like slamming, starting to slam his hand down or something like that. They had shown on TV, <laughs> he was mad about
2: something. And it, it was always, I went, then I went back to A lot sleep.
3: Of I said I was like me every weekend in the rink when we were playing games. What are you doing? <laughs> well, are
2: you colds? were one of the lucky ones. You were one of the lucky ones, Ronnie. Because forget about the fact the Cowboys stunk and the Jerry's slamming his fist down, and, and forget that Zeke Elliott was—I don't know—he was in the, the Cowboys forgot that he was in the lineup in the second half. He barely touched the ball, but um. Did, did you see? You might have seen videotapes because it played everywhere. What Tennessee's Kevin Byrd did after first half interception? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, and and did you hear what his coach, and that'd be Mike Vrabel, former Patriots player, yeah. Mike Vrabel, said about him or to him in the wake of that game?
3: Well, yeah, you know that's not the kind of thing. You know, I know Vrabel a little bit. You know, I mean, no, you know, as as a player You know, he's uh, uh, that's not his kind of thing. You know, Vrabel get a great sense mm-hmm. of humor. He's a quick witted guy. He's fun to be around. He's really smart. Both as a player and, and, and outside of that, uh, but he's not a big uh, fan of you know doing the uchi coochie Yeah, yeah, and, and being yeah, basically right. being uh, you know confirming uh, the fact. You know, some people may think you a fool, but
2: now you're confirming that you're a fool. He's never been
4: big big on that, you know. Yeah, show, show yeah. some respect for
2: the game. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And and for those of you who missed it at home there well like we're on lucky you, uh, but Byron ran to the center of the field and did a Terrell Owens like stomp on the Dallas Star at midfield. Um and what Vrabel said was that's not what we do as a team. I mean you can go up to coaches and players, celebrate with them. That's not what we do. And and yet it's what Terrell Owens did eighteen years ago. In the same stadium, and Goose, I remember watching it. i just finished covering the 49ers, and I was working at uh, Fox at the time. And Steve Mariucci was then the head coach. He not only criticized him for it. He suspended him for it. That's true. I mean, he suspended him for it for one week. So, Goose, I guess I'll I'll ask you, um, you know, if you were the Titans or Mike Vrabel, is there something more that needs to either be said or done? I don't want to make too much about this, but the fact of the matter is, yeah, he didn't respect the game. You know, he just cared about himself there and uh, some ESPN videotape. But uh, is there something that needs to be said or done?
4: Well, let me put it on a rewind here for a second and tell you what led up to this. The Cowboys recovered two fumbles in the game's Mm -hmm. first ten minutes. Right. And both times, all eleven players bolted into the end zone, <laughs> did a celebratory <laughs> pose, and I think Bayard was responding to those two stunts by the uh, Cowboys defense. So yeah. that that that's what led up to it. But, but bottom line is, don't like Vrabel said. You know, show, show some respect for the game. Show a little bit of class. Just because they don't want to show class doesn't mean you have to lack class. Yeah. I think but if but talks to Byard, talks to the team, makes them understand. You know. That, we as a franchise—that's not who we are. I think yeah. that is sufficient.
3: Yeah, yeah you know, I, my, I, my dad Clark would have said, yeah, and you know I talk about him a lot uh, for the way he was. And one of the things he used to say is, you know, just because all—and he would say he said it just like just because everyone around you is some combination of a jackass and a horse's ass doesn't mean you have to join the party, <laughs> you know. And, and it's just as simple as that. Okay, they did stupid things. Mm-hmm. Well, you know
2: the way to shut them up win the game Win the game. That's right. And, you know, I'm glad Goose mentioned that because it goes to a larger issue, and that's all these end zone celebrations. And, Ron, one I remember in particular was – it was – I think it was the Colts. um, Was it – were they playing the Patriots this year? I've forgotten. But um, they recovered a fumble. They did something, whatever. um, And these guys all rushed to the end zone, and they're posing for pictures. In the meantime, they're getting their brains beaten in, and they're losing the game. And, you know, once upon a time, this league penalized guys for excessive celebrations, but then decided to make – you know, made them look like grumpy old men. So they not only allowed it, they embraced it. They encouraged it. And the result yeah. is that we now have, you know, these idiots doing stuff like what, I mean, honestly, what Michael Thomas um, did last week. Um, and hiding a cell phone in the padding of goalposts. I mean, uh, hoping to pull a, a, a Joe Horn winning if he scores, which, of course, he did. Right. And then he got a 15-yard penalty. But, you know, he, he d- didn't make any difference. He put, put his team, team at, at risk. risk. But, but, but he doesn't care because he's on every Sports high Highlight film. Uh, and people love it because uh, they thought it's what? Great entertainment. You know, I, right. the I, only I'm thing with I would your dad. Say,
3: the only thing I would say is I would caution us, uh, uh, even though I'm the king of get off my lawn, uh, of not uh, acting like this is a recent phenomenon. It, yeah, no, that's right. Ago, many years ago, I've, I've never forgotten this play. You remember, this was back when the Patriots stunk all the time. Uh, Irving Fryer catches a bomb at the old stadium for a touchdown, runs through the end zone through the open gate and up the tunnel with his wave at his one his finger in the air and he's got the ball and that score made uh, this, uh, that touchdown made the score Patriots 7 Miami Dolphins 37 <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm never yeah. thinking,
2: what is he doing? <laughs> you yeah.
3: know, What are you celebrating? That, that you, you get to go home early, they told you, if you scored a touchdown? I mean, it was just...
2: Yeah, no, so. I mean, you're right. I mean, it, it, it's it, does, it, it it's makes worse it sound now. like you're it's right. It's it, worse now, it, but yeah. in my mind. But uh, so. I I remember Goose uh, something that uh, Peyton Manny once told me very early in his career, and that was this. He said, he was told when you get the end zone, act like you've been there before. You know what? I think that's pretty good advice. That's Barry sure.
4: Sanders. Never, never spiked the football. And right. that's, that's Jim Brown. And that's what Barry Sanders' dad told him. You know, if you score. Right. Act like you've been there before. I, I think what we're bordering on, and and I was surprised the Cowboys didn't get it with those two end zone poses. There's Mm got to be a delay game. Yeah,
2: exactly. Exactly.
4: They're they're running down there, they're (coughs) taking their two or three minutes to do this. I mean, that's a delay game. You know, the NFL's trying to squeeze these games into three-hour windows. If you're going to have a celebration after every single play, you're going to talk about a five-hour game. I think you've got to start throwing flags for delay game on some of these celebrations. Mm
3: -hmm. See, here's here's the other thing. You know, if I was the official... (laughs) How about you walk over to Garrett and say, "Okay, you know, which one of those eleven guys do you want me to throw out of the game? I'll let you pick them." Yeah, I'm gonna right, throw one of these right. guys' asses out of this game. <laughs> <laughs> and and you know, when the guy in the star, I will just walk over there as division and say, "Son, you see that?" door down there to, down by the end zone
2: go walk through it <laughs> yeah well I guess yeah, that all of this say.
4: the NFL is so politically correct though that the yeah. first time they right. do that then that it becomes oh, a no fun league and, and that's right all
2: oh, right that's right. Right. right boots right. in New York right yeah and, and you know I guess that makes all of us grumpy old men but you know what that's what I am I guess at this point well you because know to if me, you celebrate everything <coughs> then you're yeah, celebrating exactly. nothing that's right. I mean, that's that's right. It's when like Al, Al McGuire once told me about L.A. I said, "We think about L.A." He goes, "Everyone's trying so hard to be different; they're all the same." <laughs> it makes sense, you know. That's right. Exactly. Same thing here. I'll tell you. I'll tell you guys. I, I, I remember, you know. uh uh
3: You know, Bob Trumpy, when he was on TV, you know, he was, I think, the first guy ever told that story, but he went berserk when he scored his first touchdown for the Bengals, you know, because he, you know, it wasn't like he came in as some superstar draftee and he was leaping around like a crazy man. And when he came to the science, Paul Brown was standing there with his arms folded and the hat on and giving him the look, you know, and that's exactly what he said to him. But he put it this way if you ever get in there again, act mm-hmm. like you've been there before. Man. But I have my doubts. <laughs> yeah. And that was it. You know, it's you know, like Paul Brown, man. Uh, you know, and it's just, it's become, uh, uh, you know, I remember a number of years ago, uh, and this is when players and, and writers relations were different. Laurie Malloy, they were playing the Packers when the Packers were good. And, the first play of the game, they ran an out on him, You know, and he tackled a guy. He made a good tackle on a guy, but it was a 12-yard game for the first time. And literally, he jumped up, and I described in the paper like it was the Macy's Day Parade, like he was the grandmaster of the Macy's Day Parade, leaping around. And I said, were well, you that surprised that he didn't beat you for a touchdown? And to his credit, the next day, Malloy called me over to, called me over to his locker, and he goes, you know, I, I saw that, and I figured, here it comes. And I go, yeah, and he goes, no, yeah, you're right. Now, what was I celebrating? The guy just got a first down on me. I said, I don't know. You just seem pretty happy that he hadn't run behind you. Uh, yeah, now I just they don't it, even uh, think about it. You know, I, yeah, I just it.
2: think it's time somebody says, you know, like a coach, assistant, a player. You know, something, guys. Maybe we should concentrate a little more on winning this game, the getting the dance right. I mean, in Seattle last <laughs> week, and this is the last last thing I'm going to mention. There was a choreographed end zone celebration. I'm sure all of nice. you guys, everyone saw that looked like it was straight out of a chorus line. And and of course, you know, numerous TV outlets led with it when right. it was, uh, you know, it was when they were <laughs> featuring that game. What they forgot, however, was that the Seahawks got drilled, Goose. They didn't win that game. They got smoked by the Chargers at home. To me, it look stupid.
4: The the game column I wrote off the Cowboy game, my my lead was uh, the Cowboys defense spent their up week working on their celebratory poses they should have spent it working on their third down defense. Titans converted 11 converted to 14 third downs. <laughs> exactly. exactly.
2: Okay. Well, well, listen, enough of end zone celebrations because I'm sounding old, and that's because I am old, all right? Um, no, games no end zone the celebrations are old. Really old. Yeah, <laughs> right. Um, well, let's move on to something else I don't understand. Maybe you guys don't either. And, and that's what went on in Florida this week. And what went on was that the Miami Dolphins were urging voters to support their ability to legally bet on football by knocking down some propositions on the ballot. You heard me legally legally bet on football, Ron, uh, what do you think Burt Bell would have said about that oh, right now,
3: wherever he is, he is spinning. I mean that was yeah, his great right. fear uh, you know he's the guy who started the whole hiring former FBI. Uh, agents, you know, to to uh, serve in security of teams. Uh, he's the guy, of course. Before the 45 championship game, uh, uh, when the, there was a question about uh, possible gambling and in an effort mm-hmm. to uh, bribe uh, some two players from the Giants, one of whom was the quarterback, uh, you know, and he had to handle that. And then he created the injury report was was created. Sierra has forgotten about what that was for. That was created so there would not be hidden information that gamblers could could pay for to get from one team or another about Player X being hurt. So everything he did was to stay as far away from gambling as possible. And now these guys got their arms wrapped around it. Uh, Right, uh, right. You know, they're partners with FanDuel and and, uh, and DraftKings. We love to have them as sponsors. We love that. But, you know, we don't
4: own a football team.
2: Yeah, well, no, I I get it because Burt was the commissioner a zillion years ago. But this is a league that continues to treat...
4: The Cowboys
2: have a casino that sponsors them. Yeah, well, but, and the, but but this is a league that continues to treat betting guys like Kryptonite, yet it, it has one of its 32 teams, the Dolphins, basically telling people to vote in a way that'll make it easier for them to bet on football. And, and I guess it comes down to this. The league wants us to resist and avoid wagering, but its teams they want to embrace it. Reason? Money. Sure, they okay. can make a lot of it, you know, with the so-called integrity of the sport, be damned. Anyway, I know where my next play, bet is.
4: Why do you play fantasy football?
2: Money. Money. Not Not to draft Leonard Fournette. Money. Anyway, I know where my next bet is. I'm betting we're going to hear from Peter King in a few minutes, because we are on the legacy of the late Paul Zimmerman.
0: You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron
2: Borges. Well, we lost a giant of the sports journalism world last week when Paul Zimmerman, better known as Dr. Z, passed away at the age of 86. Now, all of us knew Paul, who was a Hall of Fame voter, and all of us knew that when he spoke or wrote for Sports Illustrated, you better pay attention because he knew what he was talking about. But few people I'm aware of knew Paul better than another giant in the industry, and that's Dr. Z's former colleague at Sports Illustrated, Hall of Fame voter and friend of the show, Peter King, now of NBC Sports. And Peter is here with us today. Peter, thanks so much for joining us, first of all.
5: Hey, my pleasure, guys. Thanks a lot for having me uh, to be able to talk about Paul a bit.
2: Peter, I know you've had almost a week to digest this. Um, I'll ask you an obvious question here. What do you miss most about Paul?
5: Well, I mean, basically, Clark, for the last uh, 10 years, because it was 10 years ago this Thanksgiving, that Linda, his wife, called me in in a panic-stricken voice, basically said, Paul has had some strokes, I can't understand him, she's, you know, highly upset, and uh, so my wife Ann and I went to the hospital the next day to to see him, Uh, I think it was the Friday of Thanksgiving week, if I'm not mistaken, and... um, you know paul was unable to speak other than to to kind of say yes no and a couple of syllables and it was just really uh, a shocking development but but really since then he's he's not been able to communicate Um, His brain has not been able to function, obviously, the way it did for so long when he was uh, so brilliant and so interesting and such an incredible character in our business. Um, And so that's why, you know, you, you you don't want to be insensitive at a time like this. But, you know, Paul had, uh, you know, basically 76 incredible years on this planet and 10 years in which he, he had a very difficult time on this planet. But the last 10 years also told Linda and and her family and his family a lot about Paul uh, because he had to go through so much adversity. So uh, it, it was uh, you know, as they say in our business, he had a good run. Uh, it's just unfortunate that the last ten years turned out the way they did
4: so peter what what's your favorite doctor Z story or, or anecdote
5: um Rick i would I would say that um, we had a lot of interesting go rounds about the Hall of Fame over the years um, and he he was so passionate about the Hall of Fame. Uh, As you guys know, all of you have seen that passion in the room and uh, so and he, and he, he loved debating it he loved arguing about it And there was one particular time and I can't really say who the candidate was or what the story was but Paul just savaged the guy you know in the meeting which he was wont to do which obviously you want people giving their opinions but, but Paul uh, probably went beyond the pale a bit and we got out of the meeting and I just, I just got in his face and I said what the F is wrong with you uh, and he was shocked I mean he's just because he felt like hey I'm just trying to do my best and I'm trying to be passionate and and say what I think is right about this guy and uh, I remember we didn't speak for a while after that and I didn't really want to speak to him for a while after that but I tell people this all the time about him Paul was not a neat nice little package he was a complicated guy. He could be the most curmudgeonly guy in the room and uh, but he was he 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 had strong opinions and he did not care who he uh who he might offend with those strong opinions. He was going to tell you exactly what he thought. And what he respected in our business was people who knew what they were talking about, people who worked hard, um, and he just—you know—he wasn't a big fan of the glad and the people who tried to simplify football. He wanted people to understand that football was a complex game, and part of the beauty of it was the complexity.
3: Yeah, it won't surprise you, Peter. You know, Paul and I hit it off pretty good. <laughs> for a lot of the same reasons. <laughs> I remember one day the two of us were sitting there with Herman Edwards and uh, he was coaching uh, at an owner's meeting and he had made some bo- some call that didn't work out in a blast and they're arguing back and forth and I'm sitting at the table too and finally Herm turns to me and goes, he points at Paul and he goes, you tell him, you tell him. I said, tell him what? He goes, well, what do you think? I said, Paul, he called a play because he thought it was going to work. <laughs> what the hell's yeah, wrong with you? Yeah. And Paul started laughing. He said, well, yeah, okay, when you put it that way.
5: But You know but, what it is, Ron? Ron, I'll tell you this. You know, the thing that, you know, in the last few days people have said to me, so what did you learn from this guy? And I said, you know, I learned always to ask the extra questions and to try to go a little bit farther. Um, I, I really consider one of the best things, hey, look, I mean, who knows what people think of whatever I do, but in my opinion, one of the best things I think I've done uh, is to dissect um, the key play in the Super Bowl last year, the, the Nick Foles, Zach Ertz touchdown pass that beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl. And in the week after that game, I looked into it. Uh, I ended up spending some time with Peterson Reich and Mike Groh, who designed the play, thought of the play. Uh, but, But be that as it may, I finished. I wrote 4,380 words on the play, one play. And I just kept thinking to myself, I wish Paul could read this. Because this is the, this, that's what I learned from him you know that that don't try to simplify stuff because football's not simple that's one of the reasons we all like it it's extremely complicated
3: well one thing I wanted to ask you uh, just popped in my head you know when I knew you were coming on today uh, wherever they may be and it may be very hot or maybe not we don't know that but I know they're both in the same place somewhere what do you think Dr. Z and will McDonough are saying to each other right now <laughs>
5: I think they're both, if they could have one more conversation, I think um, it would probably be, uh, you know, something about uh, it was better in the day, you Mm -hmm. know, before the game was like this now where it was so wide open. Because Paul Zimmerman probably, you know, all the conversations we ever had, he didn't love a football player. Any more than two guys, Marion Motley, a heart nosed, uh, you know, it hit you in the face running back, and Jack Lambert, mm-hmm. uh, who really was one of his favorite people on the planet. And that's the kind of football he absolutely loved. Well, that football doesn't exist much anymore. Um, and so I think they would have maybe bemoaned what's happened to the, the sport itself. But it's hard to predict what they would be talking about, Ron. I just know that it would last a long time <laughs> because they both could talk, and they both could talk a lot, and they both would think that I know more about this than you do.
3: Right. Mm-hmm. And the rest of us would just listen if we were smart.
5: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Hey, Peter,
2: Peter do, you, do you look at the game through a different lens because of him? It's a great question, Clark. I,
5: I look at it, and I always think there's more to know. Um, I always think that, uh, you know, I'm going to make absolutely sure that I don't try to oversimplify it the game because he he loved the game. Linda told me the other day that he loved rugby for its brutishness and he loved football for its complexity. And I, truer words couldn't have been spoken. Paul loved all different sports, but I think he always felt like football was the most interesting one because 22 people could influence a play almost equally. Um, and so that's really what I've learned from him over the years that, Um, you know, when in doubt, ask the extra question. And also, when in doubt, go talk to the offensive linemen (laughs) because they're the smartest guys, and most often they're alone in the locker room after the game. That's what I
4: appreciate about Paul. He he played offensive line at Columbia, and he had a deep appreciation for line play. And I think that's an aspect of football a lot of people forget. Paul, Paul wouldn't let you forget that.
5: Yeah, Goose, I think one of the things that I remember vividly with him I don't remember the game but I was covering a game uh for SI we both were at a game it had to have been a playoff game and I wanted to ask Harris Barton something he was a 49ers t- uh, offensive lineman at the time and Paul was with him maybe for 20 or 25 minutes and I kept thinking to myself get away get away from him um but but Paul he would have glommed on to, uh, he'd glom on to the offensive lineman who really knew and could explain to him exactly why a call would happen or why a play would happen. And what was so cool about it with him was. He, he loved everybody running over to talk to Roger Craig or, or Dwight Clark or Joe Montana. You guys go have them. I'm going to find out everything else. And, and then because everybody's going to know all the other stuff, I'm going to know the real story because I was the only one who talked to these two or three guys who, knew, who can tell me exactly what happened along with fresh anecdotes that you bums don't have.
3: Hmm. Well, you know, uh, one of the things I, I remember, Peter, was the year he wrote that famous story about John Hanner being the greatest offensive lineman. Yeah, yeah. I, I went to his training camp, and, of course, as you know, guys all know, it was different in those days. So I went over the room of Upshaw and Shell between practices with a magazine, and they were both friends of mine. I walked in, and I say, fellas, i got a question for you. And I show them the magazine, and Art, of course, said, it's kind of smirked, but said next to nothing. And Upshaw went off for like 20 minutes. And the next time, he saw Paul. Upshaw, <laughs> Upshaw went after him, and they went at, you know just and it was cheerful enough. But they went at each other in this tremendous debate about offensive linemen and how could you say this guy was was the greatest? Linemen. It was really fascinating to listen to the two of them talk out as peers. You know you don't see that very often, but they were talking to each right. other like they were peers. But, uh, he had that effect on.
5: I, lo- those guys I love particular. you know what they. I, I called Matt Millen last week to tell him that Paul had died. And Matt is one of those guys who uh, really Matt Matt really brought Paul into that into the world of that Raider team. The week that they were in the Super Bowl, uh, I forget which what number it was, but the week they were in the Super Bowl against the Eagles. Matt brought Paul into his room to watch film with him a couple of nights that week, and Paul thought he died and went to heaven, and always loved Matt Millen after that because of it. But uh, Matt basically said, you know, in your business, and he said, look, this is not meant to demean anybody in your business, but Paul was really, uh, you know, about the only guy who we kind of looked at as somebody who we could talk to in our language. And because Paul understood it all, he had been through it and he'd covered it for so long. And, you know, Ron, the interesting part that I've tried to tell people over the last few days is that, listen, you're missing a big part of Paul if you just talk about the X's and O's. He wrote some of the greatest... Features, most insightful features on the great players and great coaches of football. He wrote a two-part series on Joe Montana that ought to be memorialized as a book uh, that was brilliant. I think he he wrote better about Chuck Knoll than anybody. Uh, It's one of the best profiles of a coach I've ever written or I've ever read. And so you read those kind of things. And I always used to feel like after I would finish with one of those, especially – you know stuff that happened before I really knew him, and I would see him after I would write after i 'd read one of those and we 'd talk about it and I would almost be it would almost like be a rookie being a rookie going into a locker room and meeting Tom Brady for the first time, like a free agent going in there and say i don 't belong with this guy i don 't belong on his level and I would because I would read his stuff and I would say, "Not only in a football sense is it smart." It's so incredibly well written. And uh, so I I just, you know, I I just learned so much from him over the years. Um, and, And it was fun to kind of get on his level to be able sometimes to call him so and so because he was being an idiot, which sometimes he was. And it's okay. You can have a complicated relationship with somebody and still really like him and admire him. And that's sort of the way I was with Paul.
2: Peter, we got to run, but uh, thanks so much for joining us, and, and thanks for the memories of Dr. Z. Very much appreciated, and we look forward to seeing you at the Super Bowl, if not sooner.
5: Sounds great, guys. Thanks a lot
2: for having me. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. That was Hall of Fame voter Peter King. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: Well, we're almost out of time, so, Shea, sound the alarm. In the morning. Yes, sir, that means we're going to the two-minute drill. Goose, you've got it this week, so let's get started.
4: Yes, sir, Patrick Mahomes has seven consecutive 300-yard passing games. Can any defense hold him under 300?
2: Yes, sir, the Chargers. fact, they already did it in the season opener. <laughs> I got better defense, the Navy
4: Seals. Yeah, all right. <laughs> Marius Thomas ripped John Elway to Broncos after his trade to the Texans. Sour grapes or good riddance?
2: No, Bible. The original doubting Thomas. <laughs> it sounded like good riddance to uh, Vance Joseph, who
3: he, who Thomas claims told him, "Don't worry about those trade rumors. See ya."
2: <laughs> the Vance. <laughs>
4: The Redskins lost two more starting offensive linemen for the season last weekend with injuries. Three starters now gone from the Oakland Day offensive line. Where should Jay Gruden go for his replacements?
2: To Brother John. Guaranteed, Goose, anyone and everyone is available in Oakland.
3: <laughs> I suggest you go to get Will Shields' phone number. The guy played 223 consecutive games at offensive lineman. <laughs> yeah.
4: Terrell Owens is no longer the la- the last guy to run to the star to preen in Dallas. Titan safety Kenny Byard joined the fraternity Monday night. Is Byard now destined for the Hall of Fame like Owens?
2: Only if he promises not to show up.
3: I would say no. He's destined to the Ring of Dishonor in Dallas.
4: Le'Veon Bell, Tinker Bell, or for whom the bell tolls?
2: Archie Bell
4: and the Drills. <laughs>
3: Alexander Graham Bell, without whom we would know much less about Michael Thomas than
2: we do today. That's right. The New York
4: Giants are the only NFL team still winless us at home with four losses. Can and will the Giants win a home game this season?
2: Yes, sir. Mark it down, Goose. November 18th versus Tampa Bay, or as we call it in New York City, the return of the rifle.
4: I,
0: I
3: does, it does not appear to me that that will happen, although they do have the Cowboys staggering in
4: two days before New Year's. <laughs> yeah. Will Ron's Raiders ever win again?
2: Yes, sir. At the slots in Vegas. Uh,
3: Yes, but not in my lifetime or John Gruden's coaching lifetime.
4: The Raiders have a legal seven sacks, and Coach John Gruden cut his leading sacker Bruce Irvin last week. What exactly did that accomplish?
2: Uh, What most of Gruden's done this season, Goose, that'd be less than zero. It accomplished just what a
3: genius like John Gruden intended. They avoid uh, piling on calls and roughing the passer, because they get nowhere near the passer. (laughs)
2: That's That's the end of the match. That's the end of our first hour, but don't go anywhere. Coming up, we have Rocky Blair, our midseason awards, and Dr. Data on the inflated numbers that are strangling NFL history. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio.
1: And online at SBNationLive.com.
0: From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: Welcome back to hour number two of our midseason and Veterans Day edition of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron, and in this hour, we're going to vote on our midseason awards, hear what's rattling Dr. Data's cage, whew, wow, a lot rattling up there, and pay tribute to Veterans Day with U.S. Army vet and Pittsburgh Steeler star Rocky Blair. Now we had Rocky on this program nearly, I think, five years ago. You guys remember it, it was Super Bowl forty-nine, and what I remember is he was terrific, Ron.
3: Oh, yeah, no, he's always been a great sort of spokesman for the Steelers and for the services, and uh, like he was a better runner and receiver, I think, than people remember him as, and uh, and you certainly would want him in your uh, corner,
2: and we want him on our show again. Yeah. Yeah, we do, and as you mentioned, he, yeah, he was also a terrific running back, and, and since I mentioned that, I'd like to remember another terrific back who passed away last week, and that was former Minnesota fullback Bill Brown. And I mentioned because as a kid, and Ron, you'll appreciate this, I, I used to write to these guys and send them drawings that I had done, and I got a beautiful, really nice 8x10 photo back from Bill Brown that he signed, and that coincidentally I happened to look at. Last week before his passing, it it meant a lot to me then and means more to me now, much like that uh, Roman Gabriel, um, I think, signature uh, letter you got.
3: Sure, sure. Still got that letter. Uh, You know, boy, I had memories. They're often the best. uh, You know, And sometimes I think we forget how good some of these old players were. You know, Bill Brown scored more touchdowns than all but 71 people who have ever played. Seventy six. And he rushed for more yards than all but I think ninety five of the people who ever played. If you're in the top hundred in categories forty five years after you retired, I mean I didn't I didn't make it forty five minutes. Forty five <laughs> years, pretty
2: good. Pretty good. And that was a pretty good backfield. They had Goose in Minnesota. Bill Brown, Tommy Mason, and Fran Tarkin at a quarterback. Pretty good. And
4: that was the start of the decade. He finished yeah. the decade in a backfield with Joe Cap and Dave Osborne playing in a Super Bowl. You know, what I remember most about him was that military brush cut he wore the entire decade. Yeah, right. That's right. He was truly a player after Bud Grant's heart. (laughs) Disciplined, resourceful, and accountable.
2: Yeah, and, and a punishing runner, too, Goose. I mean, those are the days when fullbacks actually meant something. Yep, yep. Well, anyway, Bill Brown gone way too soon at the age of 80. Terrific player and a terrific guy. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: Ron, uh, I know you're not a half-glass-full or half-glass-empty kind of guy. You're a silver-and-black kind of guy, yeah, that is, really when cool. you're not a Leonard Fournette kind of guy. Love so. That. um, Someone who worships at the altar of Al Davis and has commitment to excellence tattooed across his back. And I'll No, because I've seen it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what do you think when John Gruden, who's in the midst, by the way, of one of the most remarkable teardowns in NFL history, what do you think when he says that there's, quote, no doubt in his mind, unquote, the players can't wait the plane open now. I assume he's talking about the Raiders, not the A's, Ron. So, I think. <laughs> uh,
3: what I think is that Gruden is delusional, and it's getting worse. His delusions began when he traded the best defensive player, Khalil Mack. They intensified when he unloaded his best offensive player, Mari Cooper. And now this shows the fever suffering and is showing no sign of breaking. He is quite lucky; <laughs> Al is not still alive, or he would be D O A. Ego can be blind, you know, and that's yeah, well, it- what's happening on with Big John Gruden. If you were a pl-
2: if you were a player, would you want to go there?
3: Depends. Uh, guys follow the money, and uh, yeah, yeah, I would too. If it's the most guaranteed money, then uh, I'd probably go there. With one exception, if anybody else is close to the Raiders, I am not headed to what the great Herb Cain used to call Baghdad by the Bay. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <A> goose, <laughs> as you know, Bruce, Gruden has a ten-year contract at Baghdad by the Bay. Uh, how long does he last? Well, how long do you think he lasts?
4: Well, the question is, will he last long enough to coach the Raiders in Las Vegas? You know, I'm yeah, I'm not sure Mark Davis would fire him as much as Gruden, realizing he had a much better gig at ESPN, a lot less stress, a lot less <laughs> yeah. and a lot more yeah. love. Yeah. he have been away, yeah. away from the sideline for nine years. The games changed since then. You know, Joe Gibbs found that out. Hall of yeah, coach. right. He was away 11 years. Came back, raised in 2004. Game changed them. He was no well, longer he... coaching at a Hall of Fame level. Walked away with years left on his contract. It happens. I think at some point Gruden will walk. I don't think it'll come down to Davis firing.
2: Well, remember when he was at ESPN? He loved everybody. I mean, there wasn't anybody he didn't love. They loved them all, loved them all. Now, uh, not so much. Um, well, I, I, Goose, as you mentioned, I can't say that any of this is a surprise. I mean, as you mentioned, he was out of coaching nine years, and he wasn't all that successful after winning a Super Bowl in his first year with Tampa Bay. I mean, you can look it up. He had a losing record the last four years there, and, and he didn't win a playoff game during that time. So, I, I, Goose, I'm not sure what the Raiders thought they were getting.
4: Well, Mark Davis is not his father. He's not a football guy. You know, he saw... What, what he saw, I think, in Gruden was what he did the first go-round with the Raiders. He, he built a Super Bowl-caliber team, and I think he thought, if I bring mm-hmm. him back, we can do it again. Well,
2: yeah, football right. doesn't work really like that. Yeah, right. Well, what you pay for, right? Um, and Mark Davis paid a lot of money for a coach who can't win. Um, okay, um, the NFL is getting what you pay for, too, and that's offense. Yeah. <laughs> the, the latest numbers, numbers this week, show that scoring throughout the league has had an all-time high. With games averaging 48.1 points through nine weeks, (laughs) as opposed to 43.9 Forty-three point nine over the same period last year. Boy, I tell you what—that's a lot of global warming in the NFL. Uh, Ron, good thing or bad thing?
3: Well, it's not good in my book. Uh, Football—you've heard me say it before, Clark. It's supposed to be a struggle between offense mm-hmm. and defense. It's not supposed to be right. a beatdown of the yeah. defense. And this is not a struggle; it's a downhill ski race with no gates. Zoom!
2: <laughs> it's the yeah. Big Twelve. Is what yeah, it is. <laughs> exactly. It's
3: nuts. It's crazy. I mean, it's not fun if everybody can score. I mean, you know what it is? It's become an NBA. Game, you only have to tune in yeah, the last that's two right. minutes.
2: That's right, that's right.
4: Yeah, this is a terrible trend. If you're not allowed to play defense anymore, that the 48 number will climb into the 50s. This league right. clearly does not want defensive players to have any say in the game's outcome anymore.
2: Yeah, no, you're right. And, and Goose, it looks more like fantasy football than just football. I mean, everything's about numbers, numbers, numbers. And you guys know. I mean, you listen to the conversations when we're there in the uh, the room as, uh, when we're voting on the Hall of Fame candidates. You've heard those conversations. There's a thought that the bigger the numbers, the greater the player. Except, I mean... You know, that just isn't so. I mean, not in an era where you're penalized or fined for playing defense and where numbers are so inflated that we have, <laughs> Ron, the Amish Rifles. Now records. we're talking about a great quarterback. Yeah, right Clark,
4: here? I agree with you 100%, but let me ask you this. Are Tom Brady's numbers artificial?
2: Absolutely. Uh, yeah, to a certain extent, yeah, because not, it's not a, a, a vertical passing game. It's a horizontal passing game, sure, and so are everyone else's. But his championships aren't. I would say his championships aren't.
3: Well, you know, it's also why these guys could play. Brady could play to whatever age he is now, early 40s, and Drew Brees. Everybody forgets Brees is 39, not 29. Uh, yeah, right. You, you know, right. They can do it because he can't touch them. It's not because they're on some super stretching program and they got some guru of nonsense. It's that they can't touch you. (laughs) They can't touch you. You know, you don't need a guru of nonsense. You don't even need anything. you You know, and here's what I hate. Flags on every
2: kickoff return.
3: Flags on every pass. That's right. Flags on every pass attempt. It's like June 14th in Moscow, Flag Day in Russia.
2: (laughs) Well, I tell you, if we we have no room for gurus of nonsense, Ron, would you please hang up? Thank you. (laughs) I love gurus of nonsense. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Well, I tell you what. There's a lot of them out there. Let me tell you. There are a lot of them out there. Um, This hits home because I remember people telling us a a year ago that Randy Moss and Terrell Owens were two or three of the best receivers (laughs) of all. Time. And the reason was because they had big numbers. Okay, whoops, forget about you know, Don Hudson, Jerry Rice, Lance, Allworth, Raymond you name it. Paul Warfield. Uh, my question to them is, where do let's say uh, Larry Fitzgerald and Antonio Brown now fit in? Because they have huge numbers too, Ron. And right. and so are Moss and Owens among the two or three best. Until they're not? Until someone passes them in numbers? I mean, you can do anything with numbers, and everything on offense is about numbers these days. As someone wrote recently, and you mentioned here, it's never been easier to play quarterback in this league than it is today.
3: Well, you're right. And, and to me, and it all sounds like I'm bashing this guy And actually, I'm not bashing him in particular, but he's just a great example. Here's all you need to know about today's numbers. Wes Welker has more receptions than yep. all but twenty-one yep. people who ever played professional football at nine hundred and three. Yep. He has more than twice as many catches as Paul Weir- Warfield, who had four hundred and twenty-seven. So here's the situation for me, you and the gooseman. We have to win a game tomorrow, or our families will be sent to <laughs> Siberia wearing only Dutch trader underwear. Who do you want to wide up? Wes Welker or Paul Warfield? <laughs>
4: Well let me let me say this when when Patrick Mahomes can come out and do something in his very first year as a starter that Dan Marino, Brett Favre, Peyton Manning <laughs> and Tom Brady could not do throw for 300 yards in 8 consecutive games then quarterback in the NFL is no longer a graduate level course.
2: Well, I'll tell you what, guys, it's never been easier to introduce this next segment because our Dr. Data, a.k.a. Rick Gossin, always goes where few others dare. And he's going to follow that conversation. So, Goose, go.
4: How absurd have the offensive numbers gotten in today's NFL? Let me count the ways for you. Last season, there were 140 individual 100-yard receiving games. This season, through nine weeks, there are already 133 such 100-yard receivers. The record for 100-yard receiving games in a single season is 2008, five years ago in 2013. This season, the NFL is on a pace to produce 254 such 100-yard receiving games. Ten years ago, there were only 161 100-yard games in the NFL. And that 2008 was a season when Hall of Famers Randy Moss and Terrell Owens, plus Andre Johnson, Larry Fitzgerald, Steve Smith, Reggie Wayne, Heinz Ward and Anquan Bolden were all steaming toward a thousand catch careers. And oh, by the way, Calvin Johnson was in his prime that season as well. Can you honestly tell me there are nine receivers in the current NFL of the same caliber as the nine I just mentioned from 2008? Is Adam Thielen, Randy Moss? Is Michael Thomas Terrell Owens? Is DeAndre Hopkins Andre Johnson? Is Odell Beckham Calvin Johnson? Yet, because the absurd rule changes that have essentially outlawed defense, there will be receivers in today's NFL that put up numbers equal to or better than the Hall of Famers and Hall of Fame candidates that I just listed from the class of 2008. They'll have to double the size of the bustroom room in Canton to accommodate all these future Hall of Fame wide receivers. So what will the criteria be going forward as we attempt to judge the Hall of Fame worthiness of these pass catchers? I'm going to leave that. For you two guys. Let me know when you get get it all figured out.
3: <laughs> well, Gooseman, if he just shifted those receivers around, there is one match. Odell Beckham is Terrell Owens. They're both a pain in the ass. Yeah, uh, right. Having That's said right.
5: that, That's right. <laughs> do you think
3: today's receivers will actually be punished, in a sense, uh, by the ridiculousness of these numbers by the Hall of Fame voters
4: and hence have their Hall of Fame mm-hmm. worthiness perhaps devalued? Yeah, I think without question. I think the mindset is already in place. In the recent years, we've been trying to determine if a 1,000-catch career is the product of the skill of a particular receiver or the style of the game played today. I think that's one of the reasons we are slow to enshrine Chris Carter and Tim Brown, and why we're slow to address the candidacies of Ward, Isaac Bruce, and Reggie Wayne. Should a 1,000-catch career be a ticket to Canton? Right now, there's a pause, and I believe it's justifiable.
2: Well, guys, the numbers here say we're out of time.
0: So we're going to commercial. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: Well, this is, as we said, our mid-season and Veterans Day edition of the Talk of Fame Network. Through nine weeks, everyone has played at least eight games or half the season, so there's that. Then this Sunday, November 11th, well, it's, it's Veterans Day when we recognize all those who serve and have served. In the military, and I'll be honest with you, that's particularly meaningful for me because my dad served in the U.S. Marines for 30 years and was involved in three wars World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, where he headed the 5th Marines. Uh, Matter of fact, still have his dress blues hanging in the closet. Well, anyway, because it's Veterans Day, as you know, um, guys, I ask you each year which NFL players and/or coaches. Pastor present, who served in the military, that you think of first. Now, we have one I think of immediately, and he's coming up, and that's former Steelers great Rocky Blyer. As I said, he's going to join us shortly. But, Gus, I'll start with you. Um, where do you go with this, guys who played in the NFL and who served in the military?
4: Yeah, Pat Tillman. You know, he walked away yep, from the right. NFL career and a million-dollar contract in his football playing prime to serve his country, and, and cost him his life. He was a definition of the word patriot, and guess what, guys? Yep. He would have been 30, 42 this week. Oh,
2: wow. Oh, wow. wow. Goose, did you read the hour the story on him, the, the yes, book? Did. Oh, great book. Ronnie, where good. do you go? Uh, I think of Gino Marchetti.
3: Uh, he comes immediately to mind. Mm-hmm. He was a machine gunner at the Battle of the Bulge in the Ardennes Forest uh, late in World War II. Uh, as you guys know, it's the second bloodiest battle in American military history. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Nearly 20,000 Americans uh, died. Gino survived. And you should all note this. He was 17 years old at the time. Oh. Is that right? 17 years old with a machine gun in his hand at the Battle of the Bulge. That's, that's, oh, my uh, gosh. That's the definition of a hero. if we get the football stuff.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I know this guy wasn't in combat, but you know, I thought about Bud Grant, for instance. I mean, he enlisted in the U.S. Navy during World War II. Um, but he was also he was a first-round pick of the Philadelphia Eagles and a fourth-round pick of the NBA <laughs> Minneapolis Lakers, whom he played for. He played for two years under then-GM... Get this, guys. Sid Hartman, a former <laughs> Hall of Fame voter, before moving on to football. I mean, did, did you guys know he was a GM? But, Goose, did you know no. he was a GM? No.
3: Well. Was Sid looking for Mick Dangleoff
2: then, too? I know. Ron, I'll ask you about uh, any others that might come to mind.
3: Yeah, well, another World War II guy, the great uh, Eagle middle linebacker and center Chuck Bednarik. Yeah. Uh, he's among the 995 NFL players who served in World War II. He was a decorated, uh, what's called a waist gunner on a B-24 bomber, which mm-hmm. means he uh, stuck in the middle. He went on uh, 30 combat missions in the European theater during World War II, and he was heavily decorated for his service. Uh uh, and, frankly, every one of those uh, gentlemen who served, you know, in World War II or any of the rest of these wars, uh, World War II made a lot more sense, obviously, than a lot of the other ones we've been engaged in. But uh, Chuck Ben-Erik, uh he was a man before he was a football player, like a lot of these you know, guys. I got,
4: uh, I got Al Blosus. was a 1940s NFL all-decade selection as a tackle despite, despite playing only three seasons. And the reason is he left the Giants in 1945 to serve in the Army. Uh, during world war ii and was killed a month into his tour of duty on a scouting exhibition behind enemy lines in france the giants have uh, retired his jersey number 32 wow
2: wow um well speaking of world war ii i guess i'll go there too i might also mention george mcafee who as you guys know played offense defense and special teams for the bears uh he also served in the navy from 1942 through 45 and who is of course in the pro football hall of fame uh i know there are are, are, of course, there are many, many others, and and, and here's to all of them, guys, because it's so much uh, sacrifice and risk in doing what they did. And I think, honestly, as we just learned from that sad story of the former mayor of Ogden, Utah, was a, that was a heartbreaker. Um, I, I've got one other question for you, and, and Goose, I'll, I'll start with you. I wrote something, uh, I think on Pat Tillman's, the anniversary of his death earlier this year, that there should be a place in the Hall of Fame for uh, NFLers who are military vets, especially either decorated or... Wounded military vets um, Or deceased military vets Would you agree?
4: I think they should have a place in the hall But not a bust
2: Yeah, no, not a bust But I'm saying like a, a wing or a section I mean, Or something yeah, like that
4: There should be some kind of display for the, for the servicemen How about you, Ron? Yeah, no, for
3: sure I mean, you know, they do those sort of periodic uh, uh, displays You know, where they put some of that stuff yeah. And then they take it down and, and I'm sure some of that is is uh, a space issue uh, mm-hmm. But certainly, yeah. I mean, the, the uh, it's interesting, you know. If if you want to chart how our our whole society has changed, there's nearly a thousand NFL players uh, uh, who went in World War II. There are a uh, little over 200 that went to Korea. There were 23 that went to Vietnam, and there's a whole yeah. lot less that have gone since then. You know, so that's yeah. kind of not just exclusive to football players or or, or athletes. It's true of the whole. Country, you know, World War II was, uh, in particular, was everybody was,
2: yeah, you know, right, was involved,
3: and I would say Vietnam was probably the last one of those wars where just about everybody knew somebody. Uh, that's right. Now nobody hardly knows anybody,
2: and it's yeah, no, that's uh, right. It's a bad that's thing, right. I, think. Uh, I think. That's right. Now no, I agree with you. Um, and, and going to what you said, I remember Chris, Chris Collins were several years ago saying, "Hey, listen, absolutely put Pat Tillman in the Hall of Fame." I think he's right on one level, put him in the Hall of Fame, but not with a bust, with other guys who have served and either were injured, decorated, or Killed in, in a war. Anyway, um, as we said, uh, it's the halfway point of the season, uh, and I know you guys voted the polls earlier this week, so this should be pretty easy for you. I'm going to ask you to vote again. Only this time, it's not behind a curtain, and a lot you're not anonymous. At least in Boston, voting right. uh, again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. uh, and then, you know, when you're finished, I'm going to hand you one of those I Voted stickers to put on your shirts. Um, only this time, um, it's going to be voting on our NFL Mid-Season Awards. And I know you've done this before, so you got the drill. Um, let's get started here. First of all, Goose, I'm going to start with you. And first up, it's Offensive Player of the, use of the Year. All right, Goose, get started, please. Patrick Mahomes.
4: Current streak of eight consecutive 300-yard pass games leads the NFL with 29 touchdown passes. Now the NFL has become a passing league, and right now no one does it better. He has 14 more touchdown passes than Aaron Rodgers, 11 more than Drew Brees, and 10 more than Tom Brady.
3: Uh, that's all true. Uh, but being a, a man of a certain age, I'm going to go for men of a certain age, and that's Drew Brees at 39. He's mm-hmm. got 18 touchdowns to, uh, to one, kind of one pick. He's got a quarterback rating of 120.6 and a completion percentage of 76.3. Even with the new rules, that's remarkable. 76.3? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I can't complete a fork to my mouth 76.3% of the time. Fantastic. Mahomes
2: has 10 more TD passes than Brady. Goose, what's his record versus Brady this year? Yeah, I'll okay. Don't, bl- don't blame Mahomes <laughs> Holmes for that. <laughs> um, hey, guys, how about Sam Bradford? You know, he are $13.5 million for playing three games. Ron, I think that's worthy of some kind of reward oh boy, yeah, or, or a, reward. <laughs> exactly <laughs> Anyways, right. Just, yeah. um, okay, next up, Defensive Player of the Year. And, Ron, I'm going to start with you. Probably get the first
3: name wrong because uh, a lot of these names I don't get anymore. Uh, Denell Hunter. Daniel Hunter, Danielle Hunter, Danielle Hunter. You can call him whatever you want. Daniel, I think it is. Danielle, there you go. But he's hunting yeah. quarterbacks like a crazy man. He is hunting quarterbacks, six. yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, so it's it's hard to uh, uh, not look at what he's done the disruptive nature of his uh, of his play and, and uh, not look in his direction. Impact player.
4: Aaron Donald, one block, mm. 10 forced fumble, two recoveries. Good call. He was the NFL Conference yep. Player of the Year in 2017. There's been no drop off.
2: That's right. That guy is unblockable. Whew, man, he's a force. Um, okay. Let's go offensive rookie of the year. Goose, and I'll start with you.
4: I've got Colts guard Quentin Nelson. And he knew, whoa, protect its oft-injured franchise quarterback, Andrew Luck. So the Colts took him with the sixth overall pick of the 2018 draft. That's very lofty for a guard, but he's been worthy of that pick. The Colts have gone three consecutive games without a sack of luck. He's been sacked just once in two other games. And he has a wow. top-ten offense, and Nelson became the first guard in history to an NFL Rookie of the Month honors in October.
2: Oh, I like it, Ron. If you that's go to the thats a Doctor that, Z pick right there. Well, it is that's a
3: Doctor Z, Z, Z pick. If you, if you get the, go to the that... first
2: annual Doctor Z Doctor Z Award, <laughs> Goose, man, that's a Doctor Dad Award, Award too. too. Hey, hey, Ron, point. if you go to a, that card store looking for Stan Jones, you ask for Quentin Nelson. What are they gonna tell you? <laughs>
3: I I said, huh? somewhere. Yeah, oh, he buys Stan Jones. Yeah. Uh, I'm gonna be with a more conventional pick. I'm gonna go with a uh, uh, Philip Lindsay in Denver. He's rushed for 591 mm-hmm. yards. He's averaging over five yards a carry on a team that stinks. And uh, <laughs> and you know you. you. You could say that uh, Saquon Barkley is maybe doing a little bit more and in kind of the same situation with the Giants, Uh, but he was supposed to. You know, this kid was an undrafted free agent out of college, and he's coming Mm -hmm. in and stomping people. So uh, tip of the helmet to him.
2: Yeah, I'm not going to say Saquon Barkley Barkley's doing a little bit more. He's doing a lot more, Ron. Okay. Um, Defensive Rookie of the Year, Ronnie. Take it. I like Derwin
3: Jones, a safety from the Chargers. Uh, yep, playing all over the field. He's got 44 tackles. He's got three and a half sacks. Uh, he's had six passes defended. He's got a pick. Uh, you know, when they took him with the 11th pick, they expected uh, production, uh, but he's producing at a, at a at a high standard all over the field. At a position that once you know finally, you know, safety in the last few years is becoming a very important position again, and, and uh, he's a reflection of that.
4: I'll go with Carolina cornerback Dante Jackson. Friend of the show in Panther G on Marty Herney. Found Jackson at the end of the second round, 2018 draft. Came a walk-in starter. Shares the NFL lead with four interceptions. Broke up seven other the passes. Forced a fumble. And has a sack for the 6-2 Panthers.
2: like it. Okay, guys. Going to get a little harder now. Goose, coach of the year.
4: I'll go ahead. Matt Nagy, the Bears. Chicago is not supposed to be a factor in the NFC North this season. Not with a rookie coach and a young quarterback in his first full season as a starter. But guess who's leading the NFC North at season midway point with a 5-3 record.
3: No, that's an interesting pick, but uh, you know I can't. To me, uh, I don't see how you you could look at Sean McVay and not uh, go with and look what he's done with that team in in the year and a half that he's been there. He's 19 and six. He's eight and one this year. They got a dominating offense. He's got a dominating offensive mind. He built a tremendous defense as well. Um, I, I think he's just you
2: know off the charts, terrific coach. Okay. Now the pièce de résistance. League MVP Gooseman. Sell like, like a piece of piece <laughs> of pizza. <Patrick> <laughs> for
4: the reasons I stated above. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay.
2: Says former Kansas City resident Rick awesome Rick. Okay, yeah, Ron. Yeah,
4: Drew Brees for the
3: reasons I stated above. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. I like Brees. I, Where
3: would the Saints be without Drew Brees? No
2: place. Yeah, except New Orleans. Yeah, old uh, I'm going Drew Brees too, uh, uh, cause, because because just knocked off the only unbeaten team out there, and the Saints would be what, Ron? The Aints without him. They'd now, be... uh, biggest surprise, Ron? Uh,
3: biggest surprise? Uh, that's a good question. Biggest
2: surprise?
4: Uh,
3: Goose. Jaguars, biggest surprise? The, Jag- the Jaguars really, just the fact. Quick, that, you know, they're Goose. Inside out,
4: you know. Brian Fitzpatrick.
2: There you go. There you go. Thanks guys. Kidding? (laughs) Thanks, guys. Here are your stickers. (laughs) Here are your stickers. You guys voted, and there's our next break.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: Well, this Sunday, November 11th, is Veterans Day, and as part of our tribute to the military, we have one of the most recognized, decorated, and frankly gracious former NFL players who served in the military, and that, of course, is Pittsburgh Steelers star Rocky Blyer, who lost part of his right foot while serving in Vietnam and was later awarded a Bronze Star. Purple Heart and Combat Infantryman Badge. Now, Rocky's still active in military causes, supporting, among others, and this is just a brief list Operation Strong Vet, Victory Media, the National Owned Veterans Business Association, Wounded Warriors, Warriors to Citizens, Veterans Jobs Fair, and Homeless Vet Run. So, who better to join us to recognize the military and Veterans Day than Rocky Blair? Rocky, thanks so much for being here.
1: Hey, Clark,
2: thank you. Thanks for having me. You got it. Rocky, first question for you. Um, I was the son of a a military career officer in the Marine Corps for 30 years. I'm wondering how significant November 11th is to you, and, and what do you think of first when that day arrives?
1: Well, obviously it's become more significant as time passes as one gets older and reflects back on what has happened not only over my life or our lives as veterans but what continues to happen in the lives of uh, all those who serve our country and especially those who are left behind and especially those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice and uh, and the gold mothers that are out there um, and um, so it, be- it be- so it becomes very important uh, within our our culture, I think, and our society to be able to pay tribute to to our veterans. And so when... um Veterans Day comes around, you know, it's um, um, it's that kind of reflection, I and I'm sure I'm not alone. I'm sure that there are thousands of veterans that all of a sudden click in to where they were, uh, what they've done, how they served, what conflict they might have been in, even if it was peacetime, uh, and um, uh, so it becomes, you know, in our lives, I think, a, a very, very special day uh, and to be celebrated.
2: What did you learn from your military experience that benefits you today?
1: Well... You know, I, I you know I think that I, I think there, there were it, it was an evolution, and I and I'm saying this coming out of the world of sports, coming out of the world of sports, and then ultimately having to uh, put all in terms. You know what teamwork's all about. You know having your buddies back, so on and so on. When you're playing sports, you know you're kind of just there. You're just you you're doing it, you're, and you're learning um, about one another. You're learning about that concept and so on. Uh, but when you're actually serving, and especially those who uh, find themselves in the front lines or serving in, in combat situation, it becomes, um, you know, it becomes much more. I mean, it becomes much more. Uh, uh, and it takes on a different... A feeling or a different uh, uh, realization of what all those things that we had been taught and or played with now become a reality of, of life. And so, um, you know, and, and those, you know, those things, those things, were, it was just kind of an imprimatur on the things I'd learned in the past uh, and, in, you know, continue to learn today. But, uh, you know, out of the service, yeah, you'll learn to be able to put up with um, uh, Different people from around the world, different cultures, different beliefs. Uh, you, you have a, uh, a sense of organization, a sense of, of uh, rank. Um, you know, you do um, what is asked of you. Um, and I find even today, you know, that uh, people I, 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 I come across, and it, and it happens when you get older. People call you sir. <laughs> they call you sir all the time, right. and now right. and then when you're <laughs> so you get, so is it just because I'm old or is it because you're in the military? <laughs> because <laughs> that is one of the things that you that uh, you continue. Well, so that's what we learn. We you know we call uh, that's uh, that's the, the, the proper etiquette, and you know everybody's served. So it uh, <laughs> just that those are you know those are memories that we have, and those who have served take with us and um, uh, and uh, all the good times as well as the sad times and bad times.
4: Rocky, of all the military causes that Clark listed, is there one that's most meaningful to you?
1: Um, in, I do, so explain that in what regards?
4: Uh, just per, more, pers- more personal than the others. Uh, there's clearly a bunch of them here. Is there one that's more personal? Victory
1: Media. Um, in, in, you know, and one of those trick questions <laughs> <laughs> that I hadn't thought that I hadn't thought about when I was preparing for this mm-hmm. interview, uh, and so I'm hemming and hawing, and I don't know whether there's one in specifically, you know, that. Um, you know comes it, 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 it's the interesting thing and I and I think it's the interesting thing on human beings on how they react in time of need how they react in time of, of crisis um, because that is the thing that gets us through life and you don't know until you're faced with that you know situation I can remember specifically oh just you know I just remember specifically when we ran into our first ambush and I was in that rice paddy and I got hit the first time. And, you know, and you didn't know what was taking place and you couldn't see the enemy specifically. Uh, And and all of a sudden, you know, there was a, there was a, um, how can I say this? There was a, a calm that took place and it just became rational thinking. Okay, here you are. What is your next move? What do you have to do? Assess the situation, you know, uh, what's happening out there in front of you? Okay, what if they come up your flank uh, to the left? You know, what if they uh, rush you? Um, And so I, I just found that kind of very interesting because that's not necessarily the way I am, but that's all of a sudden maybe it is the way I am and just the way, you know, you, you you you're a such situation. So you find yourself, and maybe you find yourself more, um, what kind of a person you are, given those stressful situations that maybe later help you on um, in life and and um, in, and in, in so on.
4: The so Rocky, you of course played with the Steelers after losing part of your foot and after receiving a letter from Art Rooney. Did you keep that letter? Uh, and if so, is it on display? And what compelled you to think it was a good idea to try the NFL after all that you've been through? And to stick, maybe been for a stick. you've
1: Okay, I, I just want to get one thing straight, and that is that uh, I had damaged. To my foot, although I did not lose part of my foot, it was a mis uh, a misnomer that's uh, that's out there. Um, and and so the biggest damage to my foot was nerve damage and tissue damage um, and um, uh, broken bones and so on. But when you when you think about the structure of, uh, of of your foot, what it does, the moving parts, the number of bones, you know, it did take its. Um, It did take a toll, but just to get things straight. And to answer your question, no, I did not keep that card. You know, I mean, you think about it, you put it in here, life goes on, you're moving, you're going on somewhere. It got this, you know, misplaced, lost or whatever it might be. But the important thing is that it's, you know, part of your story and part of my story and, and part of the memory that I have and how important it was when I got that card um, in the mail because um, I was really feeling down at the time. doctor said I'd never play this game from his perspective because of the damage to my foot, because of the nerve damage that had taken place. Uh, and uh, so all of a sudden there was this little light of hope that came in, a uh, three-by-five card with two lines on it and basically said rock team's not doing well we need you you know and it was that somebody cared or took the time and so that became very that became very important to me
4: i was, I was hoping you you wouldn't say that you put it on ebay
3: you know rocky obviously every person is made up of all the different experiences in their their life um what do you think defines you the most—your uh, experience as an NFL player, or as an athlete, uh, or as a combat veteran in the Vietnam War?
1: Well, you know, I—I I mean, obviously, it's all part together, and I, you know, and I, as as I look back, Now and we have to take, you know, we have to separate, you know, serving. <laughs> And how we view upon our, 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 our veterans today uh, and and what they do to serve our country um, to what happened 50 years ago. You know, it wasn't popular to to serve one's country. There was a draft that was going on. The lottery wasn't in effect until 1970. Um, and so a lot of us, or the majority of, you know, you know, young people my age at that time, you know, got caught in the draft. So you either join the Reserve National Guard, or you in list, Uh, or you go to school, get a deferment, but then you better keep your grades up because there was a lot of people that just, uh, you know, that that, that flunked out and boom, bam, they got drafted and and they served. One of the things I found is that Given the choice of not a popular war, um, you know, everybody wasn't running um, patriotically, you know, to enlist into the armed services. People were doing just the opposite, trying to get out of not serving. But the fact that those of us who did serve got caught, got drafted, whatever the situation may be, you know, and I look back and I'm so... um, I guess, very thankful that I had that experience, that for whatever reason that I did get a chance to serve our country for all the things that it stands for. And um, and so when I look at it today and those soldiers and young soldiers, young people who make their decision to serve our country, either go um, enlist or go to OCS or coming out of college or join ROTC, you know, or go to the academies, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a major step. And only 1% of our country, uh, 1% of our population serves, you know, our country. So there's 99%, 98 and a half of people that don't know what the military is all about or what service is or what, what it is uh, to serve one's country. Um, and sometimes I get the feeling that there's um, uh, a, a certain feeling of entitlement, you know, that um, you know we have an all-volunteer all service, so I don't have a responsibility to, to do this. And so you miss something I mean, you really miss something about what uh, our country is all about. And, um, you know, and you have a tendency uh, not to think about it or not having to serve, or that's their responsibility, not necessarily mine. You know, I thank them every day for serving because I don't have to, but, you know, that's their choice, not my choice. And so sometimes it gets convoluted in how we approach. And I think that it, especially as we, Move forward. I mean, there's, uh, there's, um, <laughs> and, and, and what I've told veterans and continuously tell veterans is that, you know, you serve and be proud of that, and you have a story to tell, whether you're in combat or not, whether you never left the States or not. But, you know, there is something that you've learned that needs to be transferred to future generations to your family you know to your grandkids um whatever it might be because otherwise who else is going to tell those stories
2: rocky thanks so much for the time we got to go but always always really talk to you
1: <laughs> hey you're welcome guys thanks
2: for the time and you know celebrating
1: uh, the uh, veterans day and this weekend and uh, i appreciate you having me on so thank then, you
3: next time we get you on we're going to talk about the play
5: Oh, that'll take it. That'll take hours. That'll there we go. Hours. That's good. <laughs> that's
2: good. That's what we need. Right. Thanks, Rocky. We'll, we'll do that. Thank you. Thank. Thank you. That was former Pittsburgh running back Rocky Blyer. Up next, it's a two-minute drill.
0: This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio from the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios. Here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges.
2: Well, we're almost to the finish line. So, Shay, let's hear it. The that means it's time for the two-minute drill. Groosh, you've got it again. Get going. Johnny Manziel won
4: one game in his debut CFL season. Could he be the next quarterback of the Raiders?
2: Uh, not unless Gruden gets rid of Derek Carr next. So, yes. Yeah, I would say, why not? He'd fit
3: right in.
4: Speaking of Canada, friend of the show, Mark Trussman, was fired as head coach of the Toronto Argos one year after winning the Grey Cup. Is this the end of the coaching line for Trussman?
3: No. There's always Cleveland. Anybody who's fired by an owner at 2 a.m. on his cell phone probably doesn't want another job. <laughs>
4: Bill Belichick made Cotterell Patterson a running back. Why didn't the Vikings or the Raiders think of that?
2: Well, because as Ryan always reminds me, there's no genius like Bungalow Bill in their building. <laughs> because, because actually those other
3: teams had real running backs available, so they used them.
4: Matthew Stafford was sacked 10 times with the Vikings. Marcus Mariota was sacked 11 times by the Ravens. So who has the worst offensive line in football?
2: Now, the Redskins. The Giants.
3: Don't ask me. Ask Eli Manning if you can get him underneath all that pile of laundry every Sunday.
4: The Lions fired best Team's coach Joe Marciano after that loss in Minnesota. How did offensive line coach Jeff Davidson keep his job?
2: Simple. Polaroids.
3: I don't know. But Matt Patricia lucky that Joe Marciano isn't related to Rocky Marciano.
4: Give me a November prediction. Which two teams play in the Super Bowl? The Saints and Tom Brady. Rams
3: and the Chiefs in the Battle of the Young Guns.
4: Ezekiel Elliott says the 3-5 Cowboys aren't out of it in the NFC East. Is that blind optimism or realism?
2: Neither. It's a tenacious ignorance of the obvious. <laughs>
3: It's blind realism. He knows the NFC is blind, but they also stink just like the AFC East.
4: Bruce Arian said he'd come out of retirement to coach Baker Mayfield and the Browns. What does Arian see that you, Jackson, did not?
2: A quarterback who can be developed. He sees the importance of a paycheck
4: when you're not getting one. Can rookie quarterback Lamar Jackson save John Harbaugh's job in Baltimore?
2: Not unless he can convince Cousin Bo to return.
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, but maybe Joe Flacco will, if he ever remembers who Joe Flacco used to be.
0: That's the, end of the game.
2: We'd like to thank Rocky Blair and Peter King for joining us, Shay Raftus for producing us, and you for listening to us. If you'd like to hear this or any podcast, just go to our website, that'd be talkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, look for us next week at this time and on this station. We'll be here. We hope you will be, too.